everyone, it's Breen, and you're listening to Super Smash Hoes, the podcast where we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. because I'm joined by the co-founder of Planera, Dr. Anne. Dr. Anne, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Vareen. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm excited to be here. I'm Liv, and I started Planera around four years ago with my co-founder, Aaron. We are a material technology company, and we have uh, created the first certified flushable sanitary products. Wow, that's amazing. So why did you come up with flushable sanitary products? Oh, great question. Um, to be honest, if we start at the beginning, we actually created just what was then a fully biodegradable pad. It wasn't flushable. Um, for me, I wanted to address the sort of plastic waste that I realized that I was producing every single month. And this was sort of uh, off the back of a discussion I had with Aaron when he picked up some sanitary pads for me. What is the difference between a biodegradable pad and like I've seen pads that are organic? Are those not biodegradable? Some organic pads are biodegradable, not all, uh, but it, not all biodegra- biodegradable pads are organic. So the organic part just pertains to how that sort of plant fiber is grown in terms of the amount, the types of pesticides or the types of uh, uh, chemicals that are used in that process. Whereas the biodegradability talks about the sort of end of life. So you could have one or both, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, uh, going to make sure that the product doesn't have a lasting impact. And that's actually one of the things that I started learning about, because when we wanted to address the impact of sanitary products and the plastic within it, we made the same assumption and created a biodegradable one. But then when we were running the numbers, because my background is medicine and my co-founder's background is engineering. So we were, we were running sort of life cycle assessments, trying to understand what would be the potential impact of uh, people using the mass market switching to biodegradable ones. But then that was really where the shocking factor came in, where we realized that we'd be really making very little impact because the substitution of materials affects the beginning of life of the product how the materials are grown and how they're put into the product, which completely, of course, makes a difference. But where we're really struggling today is the end of life because we're using products for eight hours, but the typical sanitary products last for about 500 years. Even the biodegradable ones at minimum last for 80 years. So we are left with this sort of growing problem where our waste will ultimately outlive us. So that's why we were thinking, how can we address this problem where half of the world, over half of the world, are like must use these products in order to, you know, uh, find a solution for their period. So that's why we came up with Flushable. You're already sitting on the toilet. We flush thousands of tons of toilet paper down the toilets every single day, which are recycled, put back into the ecosystem with biosolids. So why not create a sanitary product that does the same thing? So that's amazing. But I do have a question. I mean, it's not like the menstrual hygiene industry is a small industry. And it's not something that's, you know, new, we have been having menstrual products created for however long, I don't know that you probably know the data more than I do. So why is this, you know, issue of end of life, especially when we have so many conversations around ESG and sustainability in the corporate world right now, only coming to fruition, you know, today in in 2021? 
that's a really great question and something that I've been sort of thinking around with Aaron as to why. I think there's a couple of factors. I think if we measure the tools that we use to measure impact, if we look at them, first of all, current life cycle assessment methodology was created by Nestle, which is one of the greatest polluters in the world. So they do not count. Basically, they, they do all of the analysis of the product until the product leaves their factory gates. So that's why I believe that there's been a lot of innovation in the beginning of life, because that's where it makes the hugest amount of impact in their analysis methodology. For us, we were pretty much one of the first uh, life cycle assessments that looked at the full cradle to grave of femcare products. And currently the data just doesn't exist as to how we measure the sort of impact of products going into landfill, the microplastics coming out. The first sort of investigation into microplastics, the Medellin Declaration, was only published in 2015. That's six years ago. We still don't have a way to properly measure, assess, and even control the number of microplastics that are being produced. And so I think this is a very sort of early conversation because the tools that we're using to analyze the impact have almost been a bit biased, I believe, to the beginning of life, because that's where we have the most control in the supply system. Um, so that's one of the things. But I also think another thing is technology advancements. Even when we founded Planera around four years ago, some of the non-woven technologies and polymer technologies that we're using within our products today didn't exist. So we had to work with partners across the world in order to develop them and bring them to commerciality because we need to even go back to the right up the supply chain to find sustainable polymers that are scalable within, like you said, a huge industry, because we can't just create a sustainable polymer that can only address a small portion of the market. We need a sustainable polymer that can be scaled up without impacting the ecosystem, which is where a lot of the work is going into. You know, you talked about how a lot of the research and data and the focus has been on start of life. Because of that, did you find it hard to convince a consumer base that this was an issue? I mean, because the focus really hasn't been on end of life, was that conversation hard to have or was it intuitive? Were people really receptive and they kind of went, oh, yes, we see that this is clearly an issue? Oh, yeah, that was that was an assumption that we had starting off because I agree with you. I think for me as a consumer, this was the first time I had really ever considered what happens to the product once I put it into the bin. However, when we started talking with people, we realized that actually there's a much more intrinsic problem. People hate touching dirty bins. So <laughs> it was a very easy conversation to have. In the UK, over 30% of sanitary products are already being flushed away. People, the number one reason why people are turning to flushability uh, products like us is because they, they hate having to leave used products out in their toilet. They feel like it's unhygienic. They also feel it's not very good if you're sharing a bin in a shared household. They don't like the idea of someone else potentially looking at their used products. Um, and so for the issue of end of life, we found that there was a really strong intrinsic factor where people recognized that this was causing a burden to them. And even if we took a step back and then looked at sort of the macro issue of the end of life, I think the consumers were the easiest and they are the biggest advocates for this because as consumers, we're the ones suffering the most. I think we are being told a lie by big corporations where we're essentially being sold disposable products which are not disposable. If they last for 500 years, they are not disposable. Um, and for us going into the market in the UK, over 50% of the market is owned by Always, where you don't really have a choice and the sort of products that you buy. 
So I think the consumer is frustrated. So really sort of supports this end of life. And should I believe it should be the responsibility of the companies who make these products to make it as easy and as convenient as possible for consumers to live sustainably. So, you know, I have actually heard of quite a few um, startup or smaller organizations that are really working in the menstrual hygiene industry to create sustainable products. Yet, I still haven't seen brands like always, brands like this, like large brands who have dominated the industry for a long time, take steps towards this. And do you have any understanding of why? I mean, presumably they have more resources, they have more money, they have the market research. If anything, should they not be the ones leading this movement? I agree. I agree. But I I wonder when I look in as a consumer, if um, if you own over 50% of the market, I wonder what your incentive is to innovate. If you already have uh, over half of the population buying your brand, I suppose there's a worry that they could cannibalize their existing line. Um, I suppose it's a similar story of when Nikon first developed the digital camera and they uh, shelved it. And Sorry, it was Kodak who developed it and they shelved it until later Nikon produced it and sort of brought it out to the masses because they were worried about the cannibalization of their existing product line. So I wonder whether there's that element. But I also think that flushability in itself is a fairly new industry and area as a route of disposal. I know that there um, there has been a lot of sort of uh, confusion with non-flushables being marketed as flushables. So that's something that I'm really passionate about working really hard towards campaigning is making sure that we really protect this term. I do not want unflushables going anywhere near the toilet. Um, and it's not about just, you know, it's not that I want everyone to f- start flushing products because I think it's fun. I think it genuinely is the best way to reduce the carbon impact. And it's the only way to ensure you get zero microplastics in your product as well. So I think that there is significant advantages of using flushability. But I think that there was a there's a big risk for these larger companies to propose uh, such a consumer behavior change. Right. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, lots of consumers are already flushing their products, products which I'm going to you know emphasize are not meant to be flushed. Things like tampons, which are not flushable, which are not regulation uh, flushable like your product. So, you know, you are creating a brand that is advertising that your products are flushable and they do meet the standard. How is it going to be difficult to convince people that they actually need to move over and buy a product that is flushable and not just flush their existing product? Of course. I think one of the things that we will start to address is the sort of peace of mind. Because if you flush an unflushable product, there is always that sort of immediate risk to the consumer. You could block your own toilet, which is expensive. If If you live in a shared house, then... That's also going to have repercussions within your household. But I, I also think that the the extrinsic sort of um, factors of sustainability and pollution are becoming more and more forefront within consumer pro, within consumers' concerns. Um, one of the things that we want to do is we're we're working with water companies and uh, trade bodies to ensure that all communications are aligned between us and water companies, so that, like you said, there is no confusion and there is this sort of education towards promoting the right things to go down the toilet as well. Mm -hmm. And can you walk me through a little bit of what that regulatory process was like, getting that um, certification as being a flushable product? What was, you know, 
I, I assume it was a really difficult path, especially because you're the first person or the first company, sorry, to bring a product to market, a menstrual hygiene product to market that is flushable. Were there a lot of regulatory hoops that you had to jump to, to really assert that this is safe, this can be done? And was there any pushback you got on this? Yeah, I'd be happy to chat you through it. So we started the process pretty much when we thought about creating a flushable product we reached out directly to the water research center in the uk they are the laboratory that does the independent testing under the water industry standard protocol so we have passed by the industry standard what the boring name is the 040602 if any of your listeners want to search it up but the more sort of common name is the find to flush protocol so the reason that we started working with them is that we wanted to learn what their common issues is because we we never wanted to sort of create a product and essentially force it down their throats because that I don't think is the right way to go about it but it's also I don't think it's right I think we need to understand what the current issues are and design a product that doesn't fall into any of those and promotes the right sort of behavior um, so the first two three years was just us learning uh, learning what their sort of protocols are and also for us it was difficult because you're right that there is no standard protocol in place. We had to create a pathway. We had to work with these regulatory bodies who were really supportive. I think for them, they saw this innovation as something that could be applied, applied not just in femcare, but baby care, incontinence. You know, 30, around 30 to 40 percent of an average consumer's household bin is made up of absorbent hygiene products. Imagine if we can stop all of that going into the bin, stop it going to landfill, stop it going to incinerators. You know, if we flush it away, we, we promote a circular ecosystem. The, the water companies are promoting what they're calling this biosolids to agriculture, where these uh, biosolids, this organic matter, can essentially be used in a cyclical way to go back into agriculture, do soil conditioning and return the carbon back into the ecosystem. There is a much more simpler route and cyclical and also ensuring that we don't need to build new new infrastructure to, for example, recycling or taking things away or finding a new way to break these products down. So for us, we found that the water companies and these sort of trade companies have been really supportive. Um, and that's something that we want to continue. We're continuing to work with them as we've got other products that we want to bring into the market as well. So um, we really want to share our data and all of our learning so far to make sure that everyone benefits uh, from this technology. That's really interesting because I didn't know much about, you know, the life cycle of the things that we flush or, you know, the use of biosolids. And I think it's fair to say that the average person doesn't know that biosolids and the things we flush are part of a circular economy and are used for things like agriculture. With that being said, though, also about working very closely with the regulatory authorities in the UK, one question comes up about scalability, which I do want to talk a lot about a little bit later in the conversation, but I want to bring it up right now as well, is in terms of scalability and looking at global markets, I don't know if you guys are that far in your process yet, but have you find that the regulate have you found, sorry, that the regulations differ country by country? Are sewage systems differently equipped in different places? And you know, does then the pad composition need to change? Mm. Great question. We did a global regulatory audit because for us, we were looking at sort of business proposition in terms of scale. Where do we want to go into? Because I think flushability is an inherent sort of privileged product because you need a certain amount of infrastructure in order to flush a product away. But then if we take the sort of flushability element out, 
just look at the technology itself. What you've essentially ended up with is a microplastic, microplastic free product that doesn't need anything else to sort of degrade away. All it needs is anaerobic bacteria, which are present in most soils, as well as moisture, which you get from the use of a product. Then you can put it into the ground and be safe that it will degrade away as you walk away. So that's something that we explored in terms of both just bringing a sanitary product to market, um, but also in terms of flushability. Rather disappointingly, there wasn't a huge amount of regulations outside of Europe, North America, and Canada for sort of flushability, which are not currently mandatory either. So we have reached out to Adana, who are the European and Inda, who are the North American and Canadian sort of trade bodies and started to um, work with them because you're right. That is something that we are looking at. Our, our, our patent applications are, we've got uh, two patent families that cover US, Europe, India, Indonesia, and China. So we are looking at a sort of global uh, business to scale this, hopefully this proposition. So that's why we have been looking at those five markets with interest. I wanted to ask you a little bit about greenwashing, you know, and the more and more I see sustainable companies, um, I have this worry that there is this increasing trend in all industries to greenwash and to, to say that they are to an extent, doing something that is environmentally friendly or is sustainable. And I know Planera is really making a conscious effort of being incredibly transparent. You know, there's so much information on your website. So where do you see yourself in this kind of world of greenwashing, in this new world of sustainability? Um, and can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, how Planera fits into these puzzle pieces? You're right. I think um, greenwashing is something, as a consumer, I find incredibly frustrating. And as an entrepreneur, uh, I find it's, well, of course, it's misleading, but I, I find that it can either come from one of two places. It could either come from a place of uh, accidental ignorance, um, either they believe, for example, that uh, like, a, for example, uh, substitution of materials or tackling the beginning of life to be, you know, the best solution for this or a place of deliberate sort of uh, communication to try and show uh, to customers that they are making an effort within sustainability. And I think both of these could be tackled with data. And that's really where for me, as a founder, I, I think it's one of the sort of one of the three main values that I've built Planera around. So I'm really pleased that you think we've been transparent on our website. I hope to be more transparent as we grow. So one of the things that we're working on is to share the data that we've been learning. So the life cycle analysis, all of the sort of uh, data that we've been gathering from working with all of these water companies and, you know, sharing this, first of all, to the public, but also with other companies and other members in the industry, um, because there's absolutely no way for us to make a significant impact if we do it all by ourselves. I think with greenwashing, um, consumers are also becoming more and more aware. I think with the, the recent COP26, um, there is building frustration amongst the public around potential action or inaction of key leaders um, within this space. And I think people are looking towards corporates to also put the pressure on. Um, people identify, I believe, it could be an optimistic view, but I also am hopeful that the market um, is becoming more critical 
of these corporate players who play into greenwashing. Um, because I'm hoping that with the sharing of data, it's, you know, it's more and more difficult to mask. You know, with that idea of the public becoming more critical of corporations, you, you talk about this a lot on your website, but I, um, I'd like to hear more about it, you know, for the, I think the viewers would find it interesting. Your consumers play a large role in the development of Planera, right? And I want to know a little bit more about how Planera, you know, worked with its consumers, with its community to develop this product. Yeah. Oh, that's my favorite bit. Um, so uh, they've uh, chosen the name Generation Zero Waste, which I love. I think it perfectly encapsulates who uh, I, I believe that who we are around, you know, not leaving our waste to outlive ourselves. I would say that one of the major things that they did was, you know, testing our, our baseline product. So for six months, we tested our product with the public. We initially had space for around 100 people per month, but we had two and a half thousand people uh, sign up to test our products in the first 24 hours. So over the next six months, we uh, quickly expanded. And because we're running, we're, we're creating all of our products ourselves in East London. Um, we expanded to uh, test our products with one and a half thousand people. Um, through there, we were able to test all of their most important sort of metrics in terms of comfort, softness, absorption, hygiene, shape, all of these things which are sort of separate to the sustainability, but, but you know, crucial to the performance of a sanitary product. Um, and this sort of direct communication and working together really um, vital. We would not be here without them. And then afterwards, the, you know, the people, even the sort of branding, we've checked our colors with them. We the people you send our website, they're our early adopters. We've not got any models. They're all of our community. Because I think that that sort of authenticity, I think, I hope, uh, translates um, with our brand and online. Because I, I, these products have genuinely been developed with our community. And everyone of our team, whether male or female or other, like they all wear these pads. Um, everyone wears underwear, so you can wear these pads. And I think they're also included within these testing. You know, everyone needs to wear these products and learn how to best improve them. And this is a continuous cycle. Even once we opened up our shop earlier this year online, um, every single one of those customers will get a follow-up email and will ask for their input. Um, every time you touch a product from us, we will ask you for your feedback. That's incredible. And I want to go back to something you said earlier, and which I didn't know about. Um, your products are made in East London. Yes, yes, because all of the sanitary products, uh, all of the sanitary products in the market are made using essentially the same method where you spray uh, acrylic-based thermoplastic glue in between the layers to stick them together. This is highly uh, unsustainable and it's a hidden plastic cost to the consumer because you don't see the, the acrylic glue, but it's also, um, you can't make a flushable product like that. So what we've done is we've completely changed the manufacturing process where we've removed, so it's a consumable free process and we use friction to weld our products together. So there's no consumables, it's a much more sustainable process. But in order to do that, um, we've had to sort of do everything from scratch. So we've got uh, our own facility in East London. We've just, um, we're just raising up, well, we've just uh, raised our seed round to scale up our production so we can be ready for our launch next year with our big machine. That's absolutely incredible. You know, I I don't hear very often of startups, you know, having their own manufacturing. And I think that really points to the fact that this is something that is not only innovative, but you have the ability to take all of that feedback and take it directly, you know, to the manufacturer yourself 
and incorporate it. Uh, that, I mean, I didn't know that before this interview and I heard you say that and it really just stuck with me. Thank you. That's, I think that's my favorite part because as soon as you get an email or a feedback from a consumer, there's so many things that we've changed. We've improved the adhesive formulation. We've changed the shape. We've made the wings, like all of this material substitution. We can do everything because we touch so many parts of the supply chain from the conversions to the manufacturing, the distribution, the brand itself. And I think that's really what uh, I think our, our early adopters love because they can put their feedback in and they can see in two months time their feedback coming into fruition. Yeah, and you know, we we talked a lot about Planera focuses on end of life. And a part of me earlier in this interview thought, okay, we have all of this conversation on end of life. And I know you said that generally companies focus on start of life, but does that mean we're sacrificing one for the other? But the fact that you have control over the entire supply chain in a very transparent way, you have your own factory, you know, or your own manufacturing, it shows that, you know, we're not just sacrificing start of life for end of life. It's really it's adding the end of life process. And uh, wow, I'm still taken aback by how incredible this is. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, you mentioned seed funding. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you had to go for, I'm, I assume you had to go for funding and meet with different investors. What was the biggest challenge you faced with getting investors on board with this? And what I assume is a largely, you know, this assumption might be, completely wrong but what I assume is an incredibly male-dominated space was that difficult to navigate Ooh, great question I don't know if this is the answer that you're looking for but I've I've found it certain I I haven't found those challenges when raising our our fundraising I and also for me certainly the the investors that we're talking to on on are mostly female um i would say that we're very lucky because of the because of the types of investors we brought in from our our pre-seed so in 2019 when we raised our pre-seed round we were led by ada ventures in the uk which is all about investing in under uh, funded niches founders and industries and so i think that definitely lent itself to the types of investors that we were inviting uh, to participate in this round, but also the types of networks that we were tapping into. Um, I also think that impact investing has really taken off in the last you know, decade, but definitely I feel that in the last couple of years, the, the typically some more sort of tech companies or deep tech, sorry, tech investors or deep tech investors are also uh, flexing into impact investing because it's not the fact that they sort of pull this apart into calling it impact investing, I feel like it should just be a core when you're an investor, but that's just my own opinion as a um, as an entrepreneur. But I, I, I feel that that's definitely promoted a lot of the conversations I've had with investors, uh, certainly for the seed round. Okay, well, I'm glad I was wrong and I'm glad my assumption was wrong. But it's also my own personal uh, sort of experience. I could be that, you know, my own, I'm sure that many founders have had different experiences, and also because we are a London-based startup, it also, um, I think that there are a lot more sort of uh, female funds that are sort of springing up, certainly in the London ecosystem that I've become aware of. Mm-hmm. No, that that's amazing, and that's the kind of stuff I want to hear. Like I don't want to hear negative stuff all the time, so I am glad to 
please put me in my place tell me no, no. no don't get me wrong we've certainly had some conversations uh, I I had a conversation with an investor where um they they saw a, a trifold you know a wrapped individual pad and asked me how someone was going to wear that when what they'd seen on the tv commercials was typically more curved and I I was like wow there, there's a real so don't get me wrong you do have conversations where people are completely alien with a product or new to this industry and there is a lot of sort of possibly matronly conversation from my end around education of what periods are and what period products are but I would say the majority of my conversations have been really positive and I've learned a lot from them. I know um, in the past few years I have been living in the UK I am not anymore but I was and I knew I know that in the last little while the periods have dominated um in discussions right like in the media or news whether it's about the period tax or accessibility to period products at school period poverty i there has been a lot of discussion around periods in the last few years that i think even just comparing to canada where i am right now i don't see that same environment so can you you know talk to me a little bit about how that overarching environment if in any way impacts the work you're doing or if you find that there is relationships between period poverty and planera or the period tax and planera and navigating those dynamics larger wider conversations um, about periods and menstrual hygiene and planera of course uh, this is an area that I found extremely interesting and certainly I was learning a lot about in the first couple of years when I was starting up planera I think this has stemmed from the fact that I think there are incredible period companies in the UK and abroad who are talking about these really important issues and full credit to them because I think we would know I've certainly benefited from them talking about periods and highlighting this to consumers and there are many many positives like you've mentioned the abolishment of the period tax we're also now looking at um well promoting you know I know that Ella Daesh is campaigning for taking plastic out of tampon applicators and I know that there's this huge sort of movement around period poverty which is great um on there are obviously flip sides to things so it has become an extremely crowded market so I do think that one of the things that you did mention before around greenwashing I see potentially some companies who for example use a blend of uh certain types of fibers and then claim you know put a label across their products which is which can be misleading um and I think that sort of confusion does not help with the clarity around the space and I think that's one of the factors plus um this uh one of the things that I also think is that a lot of these sort of companies the period companies in this space have very much existed outside of retail so in terms of market share and you know really sort of challenging these larger incumbents um we're only really starting to see it recently as they move into retail or find different sort of acquisition channels in order to really take that you know market share so i i'm i'm sort of curious to see how that trend goes but i'm also a massive supporter in the sort of conversations and topics that they've been promoting back to your sort of question around how planera fits into this i see that our brand has been really sort of focused around like you said where our expertise lies the technology the end of life and providing clar- clarity around the data of it i would say that i fully support the period poverty sort of movements i wonder whether planera is the best brand to join in i wonder if there's another sort of for example conversation around period care 
and that we could, you know, add a huge amount of value to with our sort of technology around. I would love to campaign to take plastic out of period products in the same way that single use plastics was banned across straws and plastic bags. I'd love for Planari to lead the charge against that because that's something that for us, we have a lot of data and I would say that's our expertise. Um, I would certainly love to learn um, to, with other companies within this space around how else we can, for example, support other social issues like period poverty, because that's something I, that that's an area that I think we've got more to sort of learn about. Yeah, and going back to your technology, something that you have expertise in, you you mentioned earlier in this podcast that you guys have patented your technology, and you know something that comes to mind is uses beyond just menstrual hygiene products. Um, so, have you guys started looking at other applications for this? And you know, within menstrual hygiene products, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but have you? looked at or are you working towards creating let's say a flushable tampon yeah great questions so that's why we submitted our patent applications under the phrase water dispersible fluid absorber because we believe that the technology can be applied into many other industries outside of femcare we've already been approached by some baby companies to explore finding flushable products for babies because i know that waste for new parents is absolutely astronomical um, we've also been looking at the incontinence market. Um, we've also been looking at other sort of personal and household hygiene uh, sort of absorbent uh, products as well. I think for us, we're going to be very much led by our community. We know that um, that a significant portion of them have asked about baby products, which is why we're sort of exploring that. I would say sort of immediate short term, we're expanding our range of uh, femcare products because that's obviously a very sort of I would say an immediate thing for us to do, expanding into panty liners, night pads, you know, different shapes and sizes and absorbencies, all of that. Um, but you're right, looking at different industries and finding ways, even, for example, not a complete product in itself. But if we could apply some of our technology into, for example, the paper industry or the adhesive or the packaging, I know that there's a lot of other places that our technology can be applied into that we're exploring as well. Right. That's amazing. So, again, Talking a little bit about your community driving what kind of products you're going to put out, can we talk a little bit about your process of putting out products? Like, how right now can a consumer purchase a Planera pad? Oof, great one. So right now we are unfortunately completely sold out. So we opened up our store in June and then we turned on our subscriptions. But um, because of our limited supply, we are unfortunately sold out of those so i don't think that we would be opening up our store yet we are having just uh, sort of confirmed our seed round we'd be looking to launch next year fully commercially with our big machines so we'd be able to you know not hopefully be limited by our our production capacity um right now if people want to get involved we've got an active launch pad uh so that's the name <laughs> i hope you don't mind the pun but i love that name so <laughs> So with that, we are currently in recruiting people to test our panty liners, give us ideas. What are the things that we could do better? What are your current frustrations with your panty liners that we could solve? You know, like you said, we've got control of the manufacturing. We've got control over sourcing. We've got control over a lot of things. So tell us what to do. Tell us what you want. And then we can work with you to find the best solutions. And that's what we're doing. So that's how we're getting. We've already got like two and a half thousand people who have signed up for that. Um, but yeah, please join us. Tell us what you want. 
And um, we are very much active with Launchpad up right, you know, even if our store isn't open. So tell us what ideas you want us to develop. We're always here. Amazing. Thank you. And I know we're running kind of short on time. So I just wanted to ask you, where do you see Planera in the next five years? I see Planera. Um, I would, this sounds really corny, but I would love for Planera to have a complete sort of ecosystem that includes the customer as part of the development process. Um, I, I would like to obviously see us taking flushable products as a new product within this disposable femcare market. I would really like us to have challenged the concept of disposables that are currently being sold on the market and really asking consumers to expect more from their companies. I'd love that to have sort of translated through. I suppose on the sort of day-to-day running, I'd love to have sort of continually sort of built up and scaled up this launch pad to to produce really a whole host of future exciting product ranges. I've got a whole pipeline of things and I'd love to have launched a few of them by then. And I should have asked you this question at the top of the interview, but it's only striking me right now. What does Planera mean? Like, what does the name mean? So Planera is a combination of the words planet and era. I think um, a lot of these large companies in the past have are amazing machines for profit. They know how to innovate. They know how to build these con- consumer products. They know how to make money off of that. But I think part of the equation that has been missed out is the planet. And I think everyone from the consumers to corporates to regulations to governments, to poly- everyone is looking to protect the planet that we're on. And I think I'm hoping that Planera can promote the era of looking after our planet. That's amazing. I love it. I love, you know, knowing the name after hearing your story. It fits so perfectly. I want to thank you, Dr. Ann slash Olivia. I don't know what you're more comfortable with. I feel informal. (laughs) Oh, that's fine. Yeah, Olivia's great. Thank you so much, Free, and I really appreciate you inviting on. And I've had a lot of fun chatting to you. Me too. And I really hope that, you know, all the listeners will have a chance to check out Planera. That is Launchpad, you know, geographically restrained. Is it only for UK participants? So for sending out products, uh, we typically only send them out to UK, but we accept, you know, opinions and thoughts from everywhere um because we know that there are lots of uh all you know they can all help us build a better product but unfortunately just because of the size that we are we may not be able to include them in the physical testing but we can share the you know the data that we learn all of the results that they're still part of the process but it may be that they don't get some of the physical products just yet perfect well then they'll have to stay tuned till the official launch next year Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to speak to me. For all the listeners, um, all of Planera's information, their social media, their website will be linked in the show notes. Please make sure to go follow them so you can stay up to date with their journey and you can be the first ones to know when they fully release and open their store. Thank you so much, Free. Thank you.